right, well, welcome everybody to another episode of the second season of the Mobile Home and RV Park Minute podcast. I'm your host, Tyson Cross, and today we have a really, really exciting episode. We are talking to Ryan Gibson. Ryan, what's going on? How you doing, Tyson? Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, you bet. Absolutely. Thank you for thank you for taking time to do this. Ryan's the chief investment officer and one of the co-founders of Spartan Investment Group. Um, they are primarily a self-storage developer, and they have a ton of projects going on right now, as Ryan was telling me earlier. Um, he's really responsible for the investor relations and capital raising for projects. Uh, but today, we are going to be talking about uh, a mobile home park development, which I'm really excited about, and I think a lot of people that we talk to on a daily basis will, will find fascinating. So. Again, Ryan, thanks for taking time to uh, to talk about this. I know you're incredibly busy, but um, I just want to jump right into it to make the best use of this time. And I'll give you a little context. Everybody that's listening, Ryan's team right now is in, proje- in process of building a 217-site uh, senior manufactured home community in northern Washington. And um, why don't we just jump in and maybe talk about how this all came to be? You guys are primarily self-storage guys. How did this How did this come together, or how did this come about? Yeah, so we actually have two RV parks that we've redeveloped in West Texas, and those are workforce housing projects where primarily energy workers would come and stay in our park. And about three years ago, we met uh, a family out in the Pacific Northwest that lives out. Uh, in the Olympic Peninsula, and they helped us actually deploy propane sales at our RV parks as an ancillary revenue source. And over the years, uh, they built a storage and we just became good friends. And they had this opportunity to buy this property in Squim, Washington to build this manufactured housing community. And they asked us to partner with them to do the project management, capital raising, and all things, uh, projects, financial, underwriting, uh, loans, things like that related to make the project really come off the ground, turn into a reality, and uh, kind of go through the proce- process and really kind of form the dream team uh, to, to really support something like a, that has this lift. So uh, we, it was a relationship. And actually, we met at the Best Ever Conference in Denver that happens every year. and. Uh, Lee and I, one of the partners, um, she flew out to Denver about four or five years ago and went to the conference and saw us speaking on stage about self-storage and then, you know, uh, met with us after and then realized we both lived in the Seattle area. So we kind of shared and exchanged business secrets and ideas and uh, just became good friends. So this project came about, um, we were kind of the first people that they called uh, to kind of make this work. So that's how it all came together. And then... uh, very cool. Yeah, then so this happened about two and a half years ago. We started uh, looking through the project, getting an understanding of what entitlements needed to be done still, what would be required financially, how the pro forma would work out, and what we needed, how we needed to structure the, the contractor agreement and set up the infrastructure to build something like that. And we're about, about 45 days from delivering the asset at Certificate of Occupancy. So it's just about finished. So, and... In- so again, the timeline was from when you first met him. How long ago did you say? 
Oh, uh, we've known each other for about five years, probably now. Maybe, okay. maybe, maybe okay. four years. But the project, we've been uh, kicking tires on the project for about two and a half years. Okay, so about two and a half years. You're about 30, 45 days from CFO. So pretty quick, it seems like. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it took us uh, just over a year to build it. Uh, so not bad. Uh, you know, yeah. our uh, Logan Development did our uh, site construction, and they did an outstanding job on time, on budget, and really just kind of kept us going. And we built through COVID. So if you can imagine the challenges yeah. that we have with city jurisdictions shutting down and permitting and people being out for COVID or sick, and just kind of the extra mm -hmm. precautions that you had to do during construction. It's um, really impressive that we got it done on time during, yeah. during COVID, so. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have a ton of questions on this. I guess, first and foremost, um, why, you know, everybody talks about building parks. I mean, we, we were talking about this earlier. I think this is really a hot topic right now because, number one, there's so much interest in manufactured housing and affordable housing across the country, but really the sector this asset class has taken off and i think naturally people coming in are going well why aren't anyone building more right i mean why why don't people build these things um there's a lot of reasons why but how did this what were the challenges you found from the get-go in terms of this project and then maybe what were some of the things that really lent itself to being when you looked at it you're like wow this could actually work really well Talk about some of the things that made this project work and then some of the challenges that, that most people would run into. There's three things that go into building a mobile home park, in my opinion. Uh, number one, you need the zoning and the city approval, which kills all projects. Uh, you pretty, <laughs> pretty much don't have enough vacant land and enough city support to do a project. So that's that's your first, your first uh, deal, deal killer is the, the ability to build. A lot of politicians run on their platforms to welcome affordable housing or say they're gonna add more affordable housing, but when the rubber meets the road, not a lot actually follow through. So, and then the zoning has to be correct. So I would probably say so, that would be, that would eliminate probably 95% of your sites. Okay, so zoning on this was what? Manufactured housing communities. So zoned for manufacturing, okay. Yeah. So that's a big thing. And I think a lot of people, I mean, we don't see that zoning hardly ever. I mean, that's like very rare. Yep. Um, what did they give you any context when this zoning was actually like how long have they had this zoning on this land was it a long time it's been a while yeah it must have been yeah it's been a yeah. while and um you know this the city itself has a lot of manufactured housing and it, i think it's a mm -hmm. great example because if you go to that community the stick built houses are worse shape than the manufactured housing if you if yeah. you drive through through some of the manufactured housing communities there some communities you can't even tell they're mobile homes, you know, by you know definition of how we used to know a mobile home. The mm -hmm. manufactured housing actually looks nicer, and it's a higher quality home. It's a 30-year HUD standard yeah. home, and it's really a, a shame that you know we kind of look at it as like this. It's going to be some trailer park or something, where really it's going to be a nice community. Yeah, yeah, and and brings up a whole nother topic about why we think that is, and why we think you know these these. These politicians and, and the communities and, and um, municipalities have such a hard time with this. We can we can kind of get into that later. So number one, you have the zoning and the city approval. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's kind of starters. You know, let's make sure that you can actually go and do what you need yeah. to do, and you can go talk to your planning department and kind of figure that out. The second thing is, can you justify the cost of the site development against what a cost of a single-family home would be? So. 
you know, if you're in a market where single-family homes are trading below $150,000, the reality is you probably can't build a manufactured housing community and make it profitable and make the numbers work. Mm -hmm. So in Sunny Squim, we're looking at $500,000, $450,000 homes. So that those market demographics work because when you're looking at developing a high-quality Class A park like ours, our community, you're looking at uh, spending about $50,000 a pad. And that means, you know, your tap fees, your grading, your site improvement, any right-of-way improvements. You know, we had to do four miles of off-street improvements where we had to do curb sidewalk gutter. We had to build a bus stop. We had to have a whole complete uh, site development plan um, that costs a lot of money just outside of just what it would cost to build per pad. And then we ran four miles of sewer, four miles of electricity, four miles of wave cable uh, to get it on city sewer. And so, you know, that infrastructure and the roads and everything that went into this park, you know, added up to about 50K a pad. So, you know, if you're, if you're just starting at 50K a pad, once you go get the home, you know, you're in it for at least $130,000, $150,000, and you haven't even started charging anything. So why would somebody not, mm -hmm. you know, go to a single-family home for that price if it's, if it's less than that? So I would probably say the economics have to make sense. You have to make sure mm -hmm. that the city and the population growth makes sense to actually build a community that's going to lease up and be able to to, uh, to buy these homes. Now our homes, are, sure. our homes are, have all the bells and whistles. You know, we have granite, mm -hmm. really nice uh, flooring. Um, these houses are very nice. Uh, double, all they're all double wide, eighteen hundred to twenty three hundred square feet, three bedroom, two and a half bathroom, uh, two two drive two car driveway, off street parking. Some of them have a two car garage and or they have at least an option for it these are pit set foundations so these are very nice homes so when you look at the home it's mm -hmm. almost like a brand new spec home so mm -hmm. you know we're coming to the market around 265 to 275 and with that price point it's still economical and affordable as compared to going and buying a stick built home for 450 to 500 thousand dollars which is also mm -hmm. going to come with the price tag of property taxes so mm -hmm. you don't pay any property taxes when we're in the, our manufactured housing community as compared to having property taxes in a regular home. Right. And, and so, and I would say the last thing that you have to look at is uh, look at the site itself. You know, so you got the zoning, you have the economics, and then look at the actual physical site. You know, how much grading, how much cutoff, you know, what's the quality of the soil? Uh, in this particular instance, we had a site that was 38 acres within the city limits. It was 1% uh, grade south to north. The grade went in the direction of the sewer connection, so we had the, the proper kind of grading to start with. We didn't have to do a lot of regrading. Uh, we had high infiltration on the soil, so when it rained, it was very hard to make mud. You had just really high-quality soil to help build. And we didn't have a lot of tree removal. We didn't have a lot of takeoff. You know, usually when you get mm -hmm. a corrupt site, you've got to take off two to three feet off the site, and you have to export all that soil, and you have to put it somewhere. And you know, trucking costs for export can be anywhere in the state from $17 to $25 a yard. And when you've got to take off, you know, 100,000, you know, or sorry, 10 to 20,000 yards, maybe even more. You know, you're talking about, you know, it could get into the millions uh, just to get your site sort of ready. So having, yeah. having the right site um, that's you know, relatively graded and flat is a big deal. So ha those are kind of the three, I think, things that you should really consider when you say, I want to build a mobile home park. 
uh, the zoning, the economics, the site are the three things. Yeah. And, and really number three can lend itself to number two, right? Because if you have additional things that make it more difficult with the site itself, obviously it's going to make your costs go up. Yeah. Um, and so going back to the number two, so um, let's really kind of get into this point because I think this is like the meat and potatoes I think a lot of people are interested in because outside of the whole zoning and city approval, which is definitely the biggest hurdle, right? I think if, if we could, if we just assume that eventually these, these people are going to figure it out and say, all right, these work, right? Case, case in point, Spartan Investment Group just built one. And look what's happening. It's thriving and everybody loves it, right? And so these things start to, because eventually I think there's going to be this shift um, because looking at your, your park, it's essentially a subdivision with, <laughs> with homes that probably are going to be built to last longer than, you know, maybe some of these stick builds, like you said, that are already there. So it, why not? And why, why don't we do this? But let's go back to number two real quick, which is the, uh, the costs. And so... You said about fifty thousand a pad. Now that's just—that's not assuming any land costs or anything. It's just infrastructure development, right? Yeah, infrastructure and, and tap okay. fees, and I'm using a very round number. Okay. Yeah, I'm not. You know, and, I, I and can explain what. Yeah. When you when you say tap fees, explain what that means. Like you're talking about utilities and things, right? Yeah. So we're responsible for putting all the infrastructure inside of the community. So putting all the water store mm -hmm. electrical cable but when you actually have the home set and you connect it to this to the utilities that's another home going on the city's infrastructure and there's fees mm -hmm. associated with doing that yep now in your experience and i know we've we've looked at this too because a lot of owners maybe they're on uh, septic and we we often talk to them and they're like well we're trying to get on public sewer in fact we had a park that we're working with the owner on that now does this do you see that this varies depending on the county or the municipality that you're in? And, and what have you seen um, the range of those be in terms of tap fees? I mean, they can be anywhere from, you know, uh, hundreds of dollars to tens of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. so per space. Per space, correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and the way we handled okay. it this time was um, the tap fees are about 20000 per site. So we've actually okay. included that in the home development cost. So when we sell the home, we include the tap fees in the sale in the home sales price. Okay. So then the tap fees are they built into that fifty then, or is that that is not including tap fees? Uh, that would be uh, most of the tap fees are included. So it might be like closer okay. to yeah, about fifty with the tap fees. If someone were starting out without land, and they were just like, hey, I want to go build one of these. Um, just focusing on the cost aspect, uh, what would it, you know, because a lot of people say, like, in apartments, they'll say, hey, you want to get the dirt for, you know, ten to 15000 a door, right? If you're, if you're going above a certain threshold, you can sort of work backwards and say, how many units can you get minus, you know, whatever the, the, the amount of acreage or lot, uh, lane you have. Do you know roughly, like, what the, the cost would be from a standpoint of, hey, you want to get the dirt for X, you want to be in this number for the yeah, good, total infrastructure? Yeah, good, great question. So this is a very loaded, it depends answer. So I'll, I'll Yeah, I'll do, I know. It's, I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. Um, and it's going to create a lot of conversation. Um, so 
let's just say you found land and there was absolutely no site plan or entitlement. That's a different story. You're probably going to spend a million dollars just going through civil, you know, maybe some design element, environmental, permitting, you know, hold costs of the land, you know, et cetera, right? So just consider that just because something is zoned manufactured housing community doesn't mean you can just go roll up with some, you know, heavy, heavy machinery <laughs> and start building a mobile Bring it on. <laughs> right. You, you've got a long ways to go. So, so something being zoned doesn't necessarily mean that you have right. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, you have matter of right, but but there's still a process. So, in the state yeah. of Washington, you know, you have to go through your SEPA, you have to go through a critical critical areas uh, study, make sure that you don't have any critical areas on the site, and you know that could take time. You have to get a you know might have to get a wetlands specialist out there to delineate your wetlands. You're going to have to do a site plan review, and every city is a little bit different. In this case, we had to get a site plan approval, which required going through the general council, you know, the city council. Mm -hmm. um, so we had to go, we had to meet with the planner, and we had to do a site development package, which included critical areas, survey, site, geotechnical. You know, you had to get a geotechnical study on a 38-acre mm -hmm. parcel that could be, you know, anywhere twenty to forty thousand dollars. You know, study yeah, soil, big. environmental phase one. You know, full. You want to do a full-blown survey. You also want to do a full-blown utilities locate, just to make sure there isn't any unrecorded utilities on the site. And you know, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars of due diligence uh, to get your mm -hmm. site plan package ready. And then you're presenting that to your city planner, and they're going to mark your site application as complete. You know, you've checked all their boxes. And then usually, what happens is the planning department. Or the planner will make a recommendation to the planning department who will then approve your site plan and then sometimes that has to go in front of the city council and they'll have to approve your site plan as well and then you have a site you have binding site plan approval or preliminary binding site plan approval and then once you build your park in your community then you have to get the final sign off and then you have a full you know binding site plan and a certificate of occupancy to start putting homes in place so there's a there's a few hurdles you have to go through so when I say, what would I expect to pay for the price of each of each lot, right? Mm -hmm. um, it would depend on what the market's trading at. So in the state of Washington, the pads are trading, you know, for a park of this quality and this size, you know, look at your end goal, right? So your end price per pad on a stabilized, you know, class A manufactured housing community is somewhere between $145,000 to $165,000 a pad. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you back mm -hmm. out a fifty thousand dollar development cost, now you're at a hundred thousand, and then you want to factor in some finance and some carry, and some hold time, and whatever your return expectations are. Uh, where we landed was about seventeen to twenty thousand dollars a pad, and the site was partially entitled by the time that we bought it. Got so it. okay. So you know you can't take that and run with it. You yeah. know, in some markets that might not make sense, and some markets that make yeah. sense. Um, just depends on what kind of yield you want to get on your investment, and it depends on what kind of sales price you have, and then how much work is to go through the entitlement process. So. Yeah, and I think that's what we were talking about before. I think it it I think it can work where it does work in in our part of the country. You know, um, you're in Seattle. I'm in Portland. So kind of on the West Coast, we see a lot of these prices, these home prices are really high, these rents are really high. And so it, it can work from a, 
from a financial aspect, but then you got maybe the Midwest, North Plains, Southeast, and it starts to it starts to look really different. So, um, and that's probably the biggest reason outside of the zoning and approval, like you said, it's just it doesn't it just doesn't make sense, you know. Yep. Um, so I guess uh, another question off that same same thinking. So there's a lot to do with a piece of land, right? And so someone's like, okay, I got I got I got a piece of land. It's zoned mobile home parks, but man, I don't really want to spend a million bucks to see if I can get it done. What's what's the like first step? Did you get um, did you go talk to the city? I, I presume you probably had conversations with them and said, hey, if we do this, are we going to have some pushback yeah, and it doesn't, or what? Yeah, it doesn't have to be a million dollars. I mean, I was kind of over exaggerating yeah. the point, but you know, you can you can get um, the warm and fuzzy, so to speak, uh, by going to your city planning department and just kind of getting an idea of what you need to do to make the site work. Yeah. You know, and just kind of a gatherings uh, requirements of what needs to go into development. So, and you're not alone. That's what your civil engineer is for. You know, you get a mm -hmm. civil engineer, uh, get on a time and expense mm -hmm. contract with your civil engineer, and you kind of go through the process with your civil, and maybe you even want to have a land use attorney with in your in your uh, uh, Rolodex. So that when yeah. you go in, it's like you understand, you know, okay, I'm going to talk to the city, you know, I meet I meet the city, the city's all about it. Now I understand what the requirements are to get a site plan approved. And then I just start mm -hmm. working through the planning process, knowing that with my land use attorney, knowing that I have right to do what I'm doing. So as long as I comply with the code, then I should be approved to do the project that I want to execute on. Yeah, and that's that's uh, that's the exploratory phases, and there's going to be some money that you spend—not a million, but you know, there's going to probably be, you know, ten thousand to a hundred thousand dollars of exploratory. You know, can I do this? And it's well worth it, yeah. you know, because you don't want to, you don't want to buy the property, you don't want to spend too much money going through the property if you're going to be met with a, a lot of resistance, which is typical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What was the process like working with uh, with the city of Squam? Excellent. Were they were they excellent? Was it great? Excellent. They were good. Yeah. So the city planner uh, was a great guy and and um, or is a great guy and and was very in support. Um, it it passed with flying colors with the planning department and when it got to the city council, they actually turned it down. There's some literature in the Squam Gazette about this. They voted it down. It was a tie vote. And there was a there was a disagreement between if manufactured home communities could have private streets or if they had to be public streets. Ours was hmm. private, and they thought that they had to be a public street, dedicated street. But um, we uh, kind of went some, there was some back and forth, and it was determined that public streets or private streets were allowed. So it went back to it went back to uh, here the hearing again, and then they voted it to move forward. So. Um, Great. You know, I, I don't want to assume too much, but I think, you know, sometimes people want to look for reasons to say no. Yeah. And again, yeah. it's like, why? Right. I mean, we could we could sit and talk about that. I, 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 I mean, I would be curious on your opinion on, you know, having gone through this process and, and looking at it sort of. I mean, I, I guess a little bit obje objectively, because you're not necessarily manufactured housing. Uh, operators, right? And so this yeah. is kind of the first big development, and you, and you looked at it, and you had great success with it. 
I wonder what you think the reason is why we see this such this big pushback. Because there's when you look at communities like this, and we look at you know places like the Portland Metro, the Seattle. I mean, when you go outside of these city limits and some of the, the rural outlying areas, there is a lot of land. I mean, there's land available. I could drive out towards Hillsboro and Forest Grove, and you know, or the east side. And there's land. It's like, why are people? Why, why aren't these? Why do we get so much pushback? You think? Yeah, I think a lot of it is how things are zoned, um, and I think Just zoning. Yeah, I think zoning is a big deal. I think uh, wetlands in the state of Washington restrict a lot of building unnecessarily and restrict the supply of housing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we live in a wetland state, and especially Western Washington, where you know the soil doesn't have very good infiltration, and a lot of these a lot of these lands are wetland. And in order to move, it's mm -hmm. it's very grossly it's expensive. And um, you know that that was one of my biggest concerns because this property had a a ditch, an irrigation ditch, going right down through the middle. And so I've moved wetlands in the state of Washington for another project, and I know what mm -hmm. that's like. And let me tell you, in order to get that approved, I had to go to my congressman. Wow. I literally went to my congressman and had them call DC to call the Corps in Seattle to get the wetland moving uh, process approved. And, yeah. Um, you know, so when you look at some of these, this, these outlying lands outside of the city, a lot of them are considered low quality wetlands. They're not doing anything yeah. for the environment. They're low quality wetlands. They're just, it's, it's soil that holds water and they're class category D or category four wetlands. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, now you have to mitigate. So now you got to pay into a mitigation banking system or you have to do mitigation on site or you have to buy the credits, which are very expensive. So um, th I think that restricts a lot of it, you know, and I think land prices are high and I think, you know, it takes years for these things to get approved, uh, mm -hmm. and you know that's the, I think the fault of our of our permit offices. Our permit offices are mm -hmm. slow, they're undermanned, um, and they you know internet you know building codes and everything else just restricts artificially restricts the supply of housing and the and the development of housing. And I think if communities yeah. just had that focus you know and saw how good these communities can be, I think we would be delivering a lot more affordable housing. To people in, in, yeah. in nice nice housing so i think it's i think it's a lot of factors um you know i don't think you could say it's one particular thing but i think that's yeah. kind of a in my opinion sort of the restrictions yeah and i think you look around some of these companies now that are that are coming up and doing uh affordable housing where like 3d printed homes there's a couple companies out in colorado that are doing that there's a group down in california that's it's like the i forget what it's called um but they, they're sort of like the, the Tesla of yeah. the, the home. Yeah. Did you see that? I can't remember what the name yeah, is. Yeah, what's the – yeah, I know I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, but they have – they have a uh, – Cover? Yeah, they have a factory like in Arizona or something, right? Or Yeah, yeah they might, yeah. yeah. Um, they've got a – they've got like a Airbnb, like their, their showcase down in – I want to say it's like near Joshua Tree or something like that, but super cool. And they're not expensive. They're they're small. They can manufacture these indoors. It's all client. It's all controlled, and then they just you know, they can bring it out. And so I think I mean I don't know. I look at that and I see the the evolution of these small houses and, and the development of them. And I think like in ten years they're going to start to perfect this process. 
And I think you're going to start seeing them in parks where right now you've got old homes, you've got parks that are run down, and you know maybe somebody wants to come in and sort of rehab that that park, assuming that they can still put structures in with the, the you know the grandfather uh, laws and things that pertain to the county and city. But I think there's going to be some opportunities there where we can develop more affordable housing um, because you know you look at a community like this. They're going to be expensive. They're, they're expensive homes relative to the market. They're not, but they're still two hundred thousand plus homes, yeah. which is, you know, not affordable. Uh, I would say on a on a relatively speaking, it is. But then you've got, you know, rents where they're going to have to pay rents in a park, and so I think at some point there's going to be these these options where they can build these communities and have these newer, more interesting options. So. Yeah, you know, the way that the way I look at affordable housing is, you know, housing pricing is driven by inventory. Mm-hmm. If there's more inventory, then prices should go down. And right now, we don't have the housing inventory needed for the current demand. So that's driving mm-hmm. up housing prices, you know, and availability of yeah. capital and financing and stuff like that, of course. But there isn't enough inventory. So I think even if you're coming in at the $200,000 price point, you're dumping inventory onto the market, which is going to mm-hmm. uh, put pressure on the housing market to come down. So, you know, I think you're right. These smaller yeah. homes, you know, they could provide a, a better high quality uh, opportunity for someone in a small, in, a, in an older park, you know, swapping out these older homes with the new homes. Mm-hmm. But then also, you know, we're, you know, our houses are top of the line manufactured housing. They're, mm-hmm. you know, double wide, they're three bedroom, two bathroom and 1800 square feet. They're good houses. And so I think yeah. that, you know, um, just having, having that more inventory is going to actually help the market in general. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. Supply and demand, right? It's not, it's not rent control. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's not going to help the market. No. Uh, it's funny. Yeah. We, I was talking to another, uh, colleague this today about sort of what he thought about the apartment market in the Portland Metro. And he was telling me the stat that we're, something like 115,000 units behind in Oregon short like on supply side wow. and I'm and I'm just like man and then he, you know it takes uh, the city of Portland somewhere like two years to get a permit approved to build and so we're not seeing anybody building down here at all yeah I mean here's a, and then you add in like, here's a concept instead of spending all this money on rent control and, and subsidized housing mm-hmm. why don't they overstaff the permit department and get these yeah. permits out of the ground in less than a week. You know, why don't why yeah. don't we when somebody is coming into a market and wants to build more housing, why are we putting a two year artificial delay on it? You know? Why 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 are mm-hmm. we not building more manufactured housing? Why aren't we get why aren't we setting out yeah. zoning in our community comprehensive planning as cities to build this affordable housing? You know, we don't we don't need to tax people to give uh, money away to people that you know need rent subsidizing. We need housing inventory, and you know yeah. my my advocation would be that you need to bolster the permit departments to be able to handle these permit applications within days or weeks. Mm-hmm. So much so that they're trying to they're calling developers and asking them, hey, like we really want you know we really want more housing here and check out this land and you know we're setting aside this zoning and things like that and actually. Uh, you know, I used to develop in Washington, D.C., and the Washington, D.C., I don't know how it went, but they had something called the Lightning Program, 
or if you paid an extra fee, they would expedite your permit through in a day or a week. Wow. So they would let you go to the front of the line and they would review all your permits and if everything checked out, you would get your permit. So, um, you know, and I think that, I mean, we've, the International Building Code has become more stringent and that's good. You know, we want to build a high quality, but yeah. also it's, it's causing, uh, uh, you know, um, a delay in the housing uh, stock. So anyway, kind of a, kind of a political discussion a little bit, but it's like, you know, hey, hey, let's, let's build more houses, you know? <laughs> part of the deal man you know it's uh i and i don't want to get too political but yeah i mean it's 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 that's a problem and and we got to look at everything that's contributing to that you know not only solutions on the affordable housing side but what are the things that are causing that right i mean so um so a couple more things on on just the the uh technical aspect of it i noticed i mentioned to you i was kind of looking at your linkedin posts and just like I don't know how you keep up with everything you got going on, but uh, one of the things you posted was you said you just refinanced out. Yeah, yeah, good question. Yeah, so talk about yeah. that because that's really interesting. Okay, so um, here's a little news flash. Uh, you know, everybody listening to this and everybody in the space knows that you know it's impossible to build a or it's impossible to build a manufactured housing community. Oh my gosh, you actually have one of the first ones built in a long time. Yeah. There must be banks just tripping over themselves to hand you money. And the reality is, is that's not true, uh, especially when COVID hits. Um, yeah. And especially as mobile home park operators know, uh, you're, you know, when you set these homes, you're not setting, you know, you're not going to be leasing up 50 homes a month. Uh, you right. know, physically, you have constraints on getting the homes set site, you know, to the site and delivered and all that stuff. But, you know, the demand, I mean, you're not going to, you're going to be doing, you know, maybe five to 10 homes at the most per month in the park. And the reality is, is your lease up time is going to be longer so that if you're financing this construction, you're going to have to carry an interest reserve that usually busts the, the limitations of who would give you a construction loan to build this. Right. So I'll tell you, they're very hard to finance on the construction side. So what we did is we used a debt fund to get the project going to a certain mm -hmm. point while we worked on more long-term financing for the asset. So we got a debt fund to come in, uh, you know, during COVID, you know, finance the project to a point, And then we found a loan of Maverick Commercial. Ben Kadish did our, did our, uh, did our lending on that brokered it uh, through Collier's and we got a syndicated loan that refinanced out the debt fund, gave us the capital to finish construction and gave us the capital to have lease up losses until we achieve stabilization. So we wow. refinanced kind of twice or financed the park twice to get us to the point of being able to lease this property up successfully. So. It was a big deal when we refinanced because it was like, okay, we've got the capital to get us through the construction and we've got the capital to get us through the, the lease up period as well, um, up into stabilization. Now, of course, once parks are stabilized or built, everybody wants to lend, uh, right? I mean, there's, right. there's, there's incredible, yeah. attractive, long-term financing on the park, but the construction side of it, you know, um, you know banks are kind of confused because this isn't uh, a neighborhood subdivision. It's not a stick built or spec home. It's kind of like a, 
it's a mobile home park, right? And, and that you're yeah. going to have ground leases and things like that. So, um, yeah. you know, and a project this size, you know, around the state of Washington, lenders are usually only comfortable, local lenders doing conventional loans are usually only comfortable doing going up to $8 million without having to go outside the bank and get a kind of a syndicated loan or a partnership loan with another lender. Uh, so, you know, it was, and, and it was COVID and we'd never built one of these before, right? So, yeah. you know, kind of a lot of, uh, X is going against you. Um, so it made the financing a little bit more difficult. So I hope that answered your question, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. No, it's very cool. I mean, it's validation too, right? Somebody now is like lending and it's like, wow, well, okay. We got, we got people behind this. Um, so the question though, one more specific on that, they gave you funding through stabilization. Did that include the cost of homes coming in and set up and everything? No. So the, the, the tenant would buy the okay. home. Yeah. Exactly. That was mostly so you're gonna, okay. interest interest reserve losses and operational lease up losses. You know, mm -hmm. when you when you have a brand new park with nobody in it, you you have costs that of the loan, the financing loan. That's your construction interest that you're going to have yeah. to pay interest on interest, and then you have operational losses like property taxes, insurance, mm -hmm. payroll, etc. That you're not going to have any income to offset that. So that gave us a right people that are doing that. Yeah, done. exactly. That gave us a tranche of capital to go the I don't know how how many months it was that we had till stabilization, but you know a few years. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So then then basically people coming in, you know, you'll have a I presume you'll have like a um, or you would have a sort of a model house and then an office. People come in and then you can say, hey, here's the here's who the homes are. These are the models that we have. Here's the source of funding that we've lined up. So you need to go apply, get approved. And then once you're approved, the home will be delivered. And then it's basically direct to the consumer. Correct. Okay. Yep. Yeah, our website is mylavendermeadows.com. Hey, everyone. So thanks for tuning in. Unfortunately, our recording got cut a little short. But you can reach Ryan at his email, and that is ryan at spartaninvestors.com. You can also go to the Spartan Investment Group's website, and that's spartan-investors.com. And lastly, the name or the website, rather, of the park that we discussed in today's call is mylavendermeadows.com. So once again, thanks for listening. I'm Tyson Cross, your host, and stick around for another episode next time on Mobile Home and RV Park Minute. Take care.